Elizabeth Franz. What a great conversation. What an interesting, interesting woman. Listening and mediation. Do we do well at listening? When you're listening to somebody, do you empty? She talks about being an empty vessel and just you know letting it come in. Or, or all too often, uh, I know I talk to people who aren't listening but are just waiting to talk. Or they keep saying, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right? And they, they're, they're not listening at all. And they're waiting to talk. Just listening and being present in this, you know, in this Western culture that we're in, where there's, you know, lots of fast things happening and clickbait and quick graphics and quick videos. You know, do we take the time to listen and to, to be open to what whoever we're talking to or communicating and speaking, or our, our friend, our partner, or whoever it may be? And mediation is, is a wonderful tool that she offers where they listen and they, they accept each other. They have these listening labs where they bring people together and they one speaks and one listens. And she talks about, you know, body posture. You know, where should your tongue be when you're listening? Where should your feet be? Should you be leaning forward? You accept what somebody's saying. If you disagree with them, is that enough? Some people that we know, they'll speak, and you'll understand them, but you'll say you just don't, you just don't agree, and they'll repeat and they'll repeat like you have to accept it. Again, we understand, but we just don't agree. Is is that wrong? You know, what do you do with those people in your life? Just a wonderful conversation about listening and about mediation with Elizabeth Franz. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Joey Pins. People ask me, how did I lose 130 pounds? The quick answer is always discipline. I started my business, wasn't paying attention to my health, was eating too much, you know, drinking too much sweets. My daughter was born. Next thing I know, I'm pre-diabetic, I have hypertension. I knew something had to change. Discipline. I, like many of you, have faced many challenges in your career, in your family, in your life, in your faith. How did you attack them? How did you approach them? How did you solve them, hopefully? It all had to have some degree of discipline. I'm also asked, how did you found and start a tech business that lasted over 25 years? Discipline. I was committed to it, enjoyed technology, didn't enjoy some aspects of it, but knew it was necessary. Discipline. Our podcast mission, how do we use discipline to better ourselves and society? Join me, please, as I talk to interesting people and discuss how they use discipline in their family and their passion and their careers and how it helped them. Our podcast vision, growth through learning from others. Joey Pins Discipline Conversations. It'll be light and serious. Join us, please. Thank you for consideration. Elizabeth Franz, such a pleasure. So why is listening not rewarded? It's a great question. First, I would say the most obvious reason is that it's mm. not easily observable, right? So speaking, I can hear you. I, can, I have words. I have expressions. I have things to take in, data to collect. Whereas listening is happening internally. It's not visual. You don't necessarily notice it's happening. 
And I think the second reason is societal conditioning, which is the Mm. reason for a lot of things. And there's this conditioning around we see speakers and actors and actresses and politicians and lawyers and all of these sort of elevated fields where they're speaking. They're kind of taking up space. And the people who don't take up space and are not as visible get forgotten. They're unobservable. And again, we're not getting rewarded for that behavior. If I listen well, I don't necessarily Mm. get a trophy. But when I was on the speech team or the debate team or mock trial, there were awards, there were trophies, there was accolades. But if I was very good at listening, nothing happened. (laughs) Yeah, I I get, sometimes I get kind of complimented. You're a good listener. And I think to myself, it's almost like being complimented being good father. I mean, you're, you're a father, you're supposed to be good, you know? So I just kind of assume that everybody should be a good listener. Now, now I listen to you, I listen to, you know, you speak, I listen to what, you know, you said in, in the podcast and some of your writings and, you know, I'm leaning forward. I, I'm showing you that I have a pen. I know you like to kind of, you know, I have the pad down here. You can't see it. it's kind of out of frame. I, I take notes, my knees, you like your, you know, knees kind of, you cross them. You talk about your body posture. Talk about that when listening. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I focus on listening to understand rather than listening mm. to respond. So listening to respond is you're talking and I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next. <laughs> and that's the listening that we see most often, right? Where you get complimented for being a good listener if when you respond, you kind of tie the other person's mm. answer into what you said or you seem like you're on topic Um, because that's observable listening, right? And then I think listening to understand is also observed in the same way, but it's a very different internal experience. So, you know, right now I have my feet on the ground, my knees are open, my arms are open to you. I am sitting more back in my chair. Sometimes I'll put my neck back. I'm I'm Mm. leaning into my mic, (laughs) Um, which just maybe changed in the digital age. Um, But I'm singing myself as an empty vessel ready to receive what you're saying. And then once I receive that, I process it. You'll see me kind of take a pause before an answer. And then I respond. So it's a mindset in your posture. You can do that by like sitting back, like you're ready to receive something, keeping your posture open. And then really, I like to think of myself as that empty vessel. I take everything that happened earlier in the day in my life and I put it to my left and I take everything that I have planned for the future and I scoop it out and I put it on the (laughs) right. I trust that they will both be there after this present moment that I'm sharing with you. And this present moment is what's filling me up. And and that requires sort of that emptying, that opening and listening to understand instead of respond. Yeah. All too often, I can tell when a person isn't listening, they're just waiting to speak. I guess they're being polite by not interrupting, <laughs> but you could tell they're just not listening and they're just waiting to speak. It, it, and you could sense it. Yeah. And, and that's a lot of how we see conversation mm. go on TV, in our families, in debate, mm. our politicians, right? Um, our celebrities are all kind of being rewarded and we're all waiting to hear what they have to say, but we're not necessarily waiting for them to respond or take something in or hear some something because we're not used to seeing that demonstrated. So as a mediator, 
what I'm doing is making that process that I'm going through, that I'm listening, verbal and reflecting it back to you and then asking, Hmm. is that what I heard you say? And that allows participants mediation or even when you're listening to someone to know you heard them because you're making verbal that the receiving of what they're saying. So what I try to say next, and I'm not doing a great job demoing this in the interview, I'll have to try to do it with your next question. Um, But what I try to do is reflect back what I've heard first. And then after I get confirmation from my speaker that I really heard what they meant, then I respond. So it's slowing Mm. it down and adding that extra language and verbiage, which, you know, in American culture, which is just boom, 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 as fast as possible, we're not used to slowing the conversation down and adding all these extra words to make sure we understand each other. Yeah, it's very important. I, I know sometimes I, I listen to some podcasts. By the way, there's only 4 million that we need to choose from now. But um, oh. sometimes I'll listen and whoever's receiving the question I hear, like when they're talking, mm-hmm, 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 you know, they, they just say, and you could just tell, I'll go back to that old point. Like when you're speaking right there, when you just spoke, I, I will occasionally say, mm, or else I kind of, mm, I kind of, I don't know what yeah. it is, the Italian in me. I don't know. I just have to, but I, I emote, but uh, <laughs> sometimes when I hear other, mm-hmm, 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 and when they're doing that, you could tell they're just not listening. Going back to your other point about being yeah. an empty vessel. That's just so important. You know, when you're listening, the idea is be empty, be present. You talk a lot about being present and just let let the words, let the emotions, let the thoughts soak in to the emptiness, pause and continue. It seems like such a simple formula, Elizabeth. Um, so it sounds like you're asking me about the formula and what it means to be an empty yes. vessel. Is that right, Joe? Okay. Um, So that was just some demonstrating. I heard your question. I'll also just go back before I answer that question. I'll go back to what you were saying about the mm mm-hmms. And Mm -hmm. I actually like those, but they they need to, if they're they're just the same generic, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, it's like you're not really listening versus when you were talking, I was like, yeah, oh, mm," you know, like I kind of varied it. And my response was showing you that I was interested. I was giving you cues that what you were saying I was receiving and those little like nodding, you see me nodding a lot or the little verbal ticks where you're kind of making a sound can actually make hmm. your speaker feel very heard. Um, so the the second part <laughs> you were asking about, this sort of simple formula, this emptying yourself, for me, it's really inspired by the Tao Te Ching and Taoism and the idea of Wu Wei which is the concept of not doing. So there's doing and then there's non-doing. And non-doing is more in alignment with sort of Taoist philosophy and the Taoist approach to living life. And emptying myself is actually Wu Wei. It's Hmm. non-doing. I don't have an agenda. I'm not doing anything. I'm simply present and in harmony with what is in front of me. So what you're saying, what you're asking, I'm now becoming one with that instead of what I think is the American Western way of doing things, which is come in, have an objective, have what you want to say, and have that take up all the space. And so if we're in a conversation, I'm in competition with you to get what I have to say out versus if I'm an empty vessel, if I'm not doing and I'm just being with you. 
I can receive what you say and respond to it in the moment instead of trying to impose or force the agenda that I have. It's amazing. While you were saying that, I took a deep breath. I actually, I took a deep breath to soak it in even more, you know, to be, you know, to all too often we see on television and you mentioned politicians where these people are just digging into their points and they're just, they're just, you know, I, even if I'm kind of wrong, I'm not wrong and just digging in and, you know, that's not how it's just the way it is, but it's not effective way to communicate. Um, What's the difference between listening and hearing? Hmm. I think it's a great question. The the difference between listening and hearing. I think they're together. I think for me, hearing is more of a physical mm. physics thing. Like, okay, there are sound waves that go into my eardrum. My eardrum. I actually think hearing. So we have like the five senses, right? Sight, nose, smell, touch, hearing. And I actually think, and I could be totally wrong. So scientists should totally correct me. But it seems more like hearing is actually more like touch because it's the sound waves going over the hairs in your eardrum. And that's how your brain is processing sound, um, if I understand that correctly. <laughs> so I think hearing is... The physics, the the physical reaction that happens when the sound wave of your voice hits the eardrums in my head. And then I think listening is taking those signals and we mm-hmm. translate it into language. We translate it into, okay, what do I, how do I want to respond? How am I going to take that in? And the the listening part of that can include what is often termed as active listening, where you're actually making verbal what you heard. So like you said something, if I reflect it back to you, you can confirm I heard you and then I can respond. If I don't make it verbal, if I don't confirm and check with you and reflect, then I'm guessing and I have no confirmation from you that I heard you. You know, as, as a, a young adolescent, uh, I'm into my 50s now and I remember, you know, maybe the first or second girlfriend and uh, I remember something that she said that I, I remember to this day. Uh, the p- perhaps the only positive thing from the relationship, but n- nevertheless, a, a, an important one. Uh, you're hearing me, but you're not listening. Hmm. Yeah. I I've I've definitely heard people say that that you're listening, mm. but you're not hearing me. And I think maybe this is where a language doesn't serve us as well. I think when I hear that, I actually hear you're hearing me physically, you're listening, like you're not talking while I'm talking to you, but you're not understanding. And part of how you show someone you understand is again, reflecting back what you heard them say, right? So, you know, Joe, you were probably sitting there letting her talk. You didn't probably didn't interrupt her. (laughs) Um, You probably were trying to understand her. But that understanding actually requires a little bit more back and forth that takes slowing down the conversation and saying, I think I'm hearing you say this. Is that right? Do I understand? And then allowing that person to confirm or correct you and then trying again until you get, yes, you heard me. I think that's very accurate. I think that's very accurate. And has the, you know, all all too often I see, well, I hear what you're saying. That means I have to agree with you. So I'm going to retort, you know, I'm going to oppose Mm. that or I'm going, you know, it gets combative when we're just trying to, 
just kind of communicate and just be present. And we need to get away from that as a society. Yeah, I think that combativeness and that sort of metric of you only understand me mm. if you agree with me. <laughs> like, you know, we have list, we have hearing, we have listening, we have understanding, we have agreeing or disagreeing, and I can understand you and right. still not agree with you. And I've definitely had friendships where, you know, people will impose advice on on me or tell me their thoughts and I'll hear them, I'll confirm, I'll reflect, and then I won't do what they advise me to do. And then they come back with, you never listen. And I come back with, so help me understand what it would have looked like for me to be listening. Like I ask a question, what do you mean? And they're like, well, you didn't take my advice. And I go, okay, I heard your advice. I understood the advice. I listened. I heard you. And I disagreed with that advice. That advice I decided wasn't right for me. And I think Again, this is where like we just don't mm. talk about listening enough. We don't have all these words, all these distinctions. So I think that's where, you know, I reflected and asked a question. It sounds like you don't feel I'm listening. What does listening look like to you? And then they say, well, you didn't take my advice. And I come back and say, well, listening to me is I heard you. I, I understood the advice you gave me. I considered it. But agreeing with you is different to me than listening to you. And, you know, that friend ended up <laughs> stopped being my friend because they wanted someone to take their advice and be a yes person. They wanted the satisfaction of sort of forcing their ideas on someone else and having them taken. And when I didn't comply, I was no longer an interesting person to impose on. And that was my boundary. And that's also, I think, not that one person's fault. I think our culture, you know, America is – We've inherited a colonized mm. country, right? We've inherited a colonized world. I think the death of the queen recently has sort of brought that to light, that there are plenty of places in the world that are happy she's dead because she's a symbol of this mm. violent colonization and the legacy of that we, that we've inherited. I mean, even the jewel in her crown has not been returned from mm. the lands it was taken from. And so- if we've inherited a culture, society, English language, communication that is steeped in colonization, of course, we're going to get people imposing themselves, forcing their ideas, wanting to compete and mm. combat you. And this act of listening openly as an empty vessel without an agenda purely to understand what you're saying is very counterintuitive and countercultural to all the conditioning we receive in America. Well, well said, Elizabeth. You know, what 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 a kind of imposition and and contract and commitment it is to have such friends. The kind of I told you so friends that you know impose this you know advice that wasn't welcome, that wasn't asked for, and when not taken, uh, you know they get upset. We need to remove these people from our lives. I, um, the idea of friendship is to elevate each other and. I feel. And, you know, it, oftentimes I've said to people, yeah, I hear you. I just don't agree. No, 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 no. You don't understand. No, no, I, no, I understand. I just simply don't agree. You host listening labs. Tell me about them. Yes. Yeah. So uh, one thing about what you said first before I answer this question is, yeah, you can say, 
I'm listening, but I disagree with you. I think what you could add to that that might have them not come back with you don't understand is, is this what you're saying? I heard this, 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 and this. Is that what you're saying? Am I understanding it? And if they say no, again, try again until they say yes, that's it. And then say, oh, okay, I understand what you're saying. And Mm -hmm. this is what I think, right? So not framing it as an immediate disagreement and also making sure that they feel very heard and understood because that tends to be the block. But that's not something people Mm -hmm. have modeled for them, skills we learn. And so we get stuck in these conversations where you don't understand me, you don't understand me, and we just like run away and Mm -hmm. say, well, good riddance. And we don't actually have to be in that position if we have those listening skills. So that ties into the listening lab. Um, We have workshops where we practice these listening skills. It's a lab because we are not lecturing. Uh, We do not force people to passively listen at us droning on and on. Our instructor will demonstrate the skill, explain how to do it. We set up an experiment very much like a lab. Here are your lab instructions. Here's the experiment. We put you in breakout rooms or when we were in person into separate rooms and Hmm. you practice with a partner. We come back and we say, what did you notice? What did you observe? How did you feel? And we learn from each other's lived experiences. And then we try the next skill. So it's been something that I've done with companies, with organizations. My favorite is when we're working in community with people. And I think when they get these skills, they realize so much of the bound, the the barriers and the challenge to collaborating and working together isn't that your team is full of bad apples, right? I think that's the sort of a liberal philosophy, not Democrat or Republican, but like liberal versus deterministic philosophy, this idea of free will. You're choosing to be a bad person. I'm imposing moral judgment. You are the problem versus maybe there's a problem with our system that it didn't teach us how to actually communicate and collaborate with each other. And then you have to ask, why does our system not teach us that? Well, because who does it benefit that we are divided? Who does it benefit that we cannot understand each other. It certainly does not benefit you and me. It certainly doesn't benefit the human race, the species. It definitely benefits the profit, the industries that are fighting mm. for your attention, that are happy that you're not voting collectively, that are happy that you're not making decisions and collaborating together because then they can continue getting away with mm. destroying our planet and putting profit over people. And so our system is never going to teach you the tools to dismantle it. And one of those foundational tools that we are teaching hmm. is listening. And in the lab, do you say, when you, you pair people up, do you say you'll speak and you'll listen? Do you give them roles? Yes. So they have speaker roles and listener roles, hmm. and then they switch. And then they're able to debrief and talk about what that experience was like and what they noticed. Any particular topic? What's the duration? Yeah, so we find that two hours is sort of the the length of time that people can do this actively, and then everyone's tired. The instructor doesn't get better. They don't get better. So we do two-hour sessions, multiple modules. Like We we keep going as long as people want to keep going. And uh, I think what we're seeing is when you kind of slow people down, and have them have a chance to practice it, think about it, embody it, communicate with each other about it. You get this deeper learning where it's something that they're able to just use 
right? So it's not something that I have to like pull out my hand out and mm. read what it says or, you know, intellectually try to think what what it did when we learn in class. It's something that I've experienced, I've learned, and it feels good because your immediate reward is connection to another human, which we need totally. as social creatures. And so because you had that experience of, whoa, I did this differently, I listened differently than I, I ever have before, I got immediately rewarded with feeling connected mm -hmm. to another human being. That reward, doing that pattern over and over again, which is classical conditioning, you end up embodying and ingraining that skill and you'll always listen that way. It's not something that you just do once in mm. class perfectly and then leave. It's a lab where that experimentation, that practice turns into a way of life. And do people come to you saying, I'm not a good listener and I need help with it? What are the candidates like? Mm. I wish. <laughs> I think there's a lot of ego. People are like, I don't need this. I'm a great listener. I get that a lot from people in my field, other mediators are like, what do you mean? I'm a mediator. I'm the mm. best kind of listener there is or therapist. I'm an excellent listener. And they go through it and they realize, well, I just hadn't mm. thought about it that way. They haven't done the sort of self-reflection. Like I think so much focus is external. Like I'm focused on you, Joe, instead of focused on, am I, have mm. I emptied myself? Am I open? Am I present? Right. And then learning how to, again, make verbal that processing so that your speaker is signaled and aware that you've taken in what they've said and have a chance to say, oh, no, I actually meant this, or I think you misunderstood me. Let me, let me try again. You just get this deeper, clear understanding. And again, you get that immediate reward of connection, which then people will keep coming back to because you'll always get it, right? Like every time you listen in this way, you're going to immediately be rewarded versus when you listen sort of in the way that we haven't thought about, we're not really taught to do it. You're not getting that reward. You're, you're looking for connection, but it's not necessarily getting you there every time. And are they coached to be an empty vessel and Taoism, you know, not doing, are they, are they the listeners coached beforehand? So we, we talk about it in the lab and we do sort of a grounding at the beginning where, again, like we picture scooping up everything mm -hmm. that happened that day and putting in a container in our left, scooping out the future and every all the anxieties, all the dreams, all of that out, putting it on our right. And we kind of get settled into the space. So we're, we're about creating mm -hmm. those conditions so that we can be present. And part of that is walking through that exercise. Part of that is jumping right into something active and not spending a ton of time lecturing and giving people's mm. mind space to wander off and be not present. And then part of that is putting them in pairs. You know, when you have one person in front of you, you don't have YouTube, you don't have social media, you have a real human in front of you really talking to you. I think that really puts you in the right conditions to be open to listening, especially when we'll do like open workshops where it's all strangers and they're mm. like, I don't even know you. <laughs> and now they have to deeply listen to them, maybe deeper than they've ever listened to anyone important to them in their life. Versus when we work with teams, you know, the feedback at the end is, wow, we've we've never communicated that well. I've never really understood my coworkers until we've gone through these exercises and together. During is so fascinating to me. And during the the lab, if somebody's not doing a good job listening, do you come in? So I think what is a good job and what is a bad job isn't up to me, uh -huh. it's up to their speaker, right? So it's 
I we talk about it. What did you notice? And if a speaker's like, well, I really didn't feel heard by my listener, then the next question is, well, what 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 would you need to feel heard, or what happened that made you feel like you weren't being heard? And well, you mm. know, they pick up their phone, or you know, they they repeated back what I said, but they didn't give me a chance to tell them what I really meant, or you know, I just felt like they were listening to respond, and they kept telling me, they kept responding, and and I didn't actually get a chance to like finish my thought, or I was interrupted. And then when we identify that behavior, then you know we're like, okay, let's try again. What could we do instead? So one thing we do in one of the modules is everyone has to ask themselves, what do mm. I need to feel heard? And that's different for every person, right? I like nods. You're nodding. I like that. Mm. I like the mm-hmm is an oh, yeah, ah. I like those. But mm. not everybody does. Not everybody wants you to lean forward or lean back. You know, Not everybody – wants the pace of the conversation to be slower or too fast. So we actually have people think about that and make a request from their listener for those things. And then when they debrief, they're able to give feedback. So I actually haven't had anyone in the lab do so badly. <laughs> I felt I had to intervene. I'd probably only intervene if it became abusive or traumatizing behavior, in which case I would just eject them from the Zoom room, <laughs> um, which is a nice uh, button to have. But I've never had that experience because I think we get people in the conditions where this is a voluntary course. You know, we're not forcing anyone to be there. We tell people, if you want to leave at any point, you can. So if you're there, we're assuming you want to be there. And we're assuming that you want to learn how to listen better. And we're creating the conditions for you to have the opportunity to practice. And people take that opportunity. Mm. People don't uh, see that opportunity and think, ooh, I'm going to mess with somebody. <laughs> you know, that's, that's maybe a reaction when you're anonymous online and you're trolling. But when there is a human in front of you genuinely trying to you know, be heard and share with you, we default to making sure that we're doing our best and our best could use improvements, but it's never something to the point where I'd have to eject someone from a Zoom yeah, room. Good does hear. that answer your question, Joe? It's good to hear, Elizabeth. Uh, <laughs> does gender play a role in listening? I think it can. You know, I think it depends on your culture and conditioning and I think also the examples of people around you and your relationship with gender. I think – I see Gen Z and they're really pushing mm. the boundaries of saying, you know, we're non-binary, we're queer, we're, you know, very open about the transgender community. It's not a hush-hush thing. I think those are all real improvements. You know, I think transgender non-binary has existed in all human history. It, I think this generation has really been given the permission and space and taken the space to say that. I think for, you know, maybe older generations or like traditional mm. depictions of gender, I think it does affect how you listen. I think it affects how you speak maybe mm. more than how you listen. And I think that it might because it affects how you speak, if you're conditioned maybe as like traditionally masculine or maybe toxically mm. masculine to like take up space and assert yourself, you're not going to have as much capacity to listen because all of your skills and everything that is expected of you and rewarded is you taking up space mm. and being assertive. Whereas maybe, you know, traditional female roles were more like you got rewarded for listening 
and you didn't necessarily get rewarded for taking up space. So you maybe have more capacity, more practice listening because of the rigid gender role that mm. you were forced into versus a man who maybe doesn't have as much space. And and I think that's changing. And I think that it also depends on how you relate to the opposite gender. You know, I've had many male friends, many male partners. I have a dad, you know, and um I listened to them. I was genuinely curious about what their experience was like. And they were very curious about mine and we were able to share that. And I think because of that, maybe we have more capacity to listen. And that's not necessarily because of our assigned gender, but more because we had really strong relationships and a curiosity for each other's lived experiences. That's comforting to hear, Elizabeth. Uh, I, I, I wonder about that. Just... Uh, you know, I have a European background and, you know, it, it's kind of a, you know, the culture is a bit different there. And uh, in in Italy, for example, where my father is from, the woman is very vocal and very, you know, uh, outspoken and, you know, runs the house in, in a kind of different manner. But um, the men just tend not to listen. But I guess that's just a, a, a generalization. It's just a generalization there. But I just, I wonder where that plays. Yeah. Another great thing you talk about, we we alluded to it, but just the body posture. One thing you mentioned, and while you were talking about it, I couldn't help but observe myself, but your tongue should be resting on the top of your mouth. Explain. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually... Um... I think the name of it is mewing, which is exercises for your tongue. And um, biologically, naturally, our tongues are supposed to rest at the top of our tongues, at the top of our mouth. So if your tongue is resting at the bottom of your mouth, that's actually straining your, your tongue muscle. It's not actually how your tongue is supposed to function. And that can change how you speak, how you breathe, how you swallow, and can lead to like lots of health problems. Um, and my friend has what is called baby tongue, where her tongue isn't long enough necessarily to like rest at the top of her mouth. So she started practicing mewing to kind of stretch her tongue muscle out and get it to rest uh, at the top. And really, it's like, you know, you have your your teeth, the, the back of your top teeth, and then if you go a little bit further in the mouth, you're, you're at the top of your mouth kind of mm. caves in a little mm. bit, like it goes in. So you know, I'm pushing it on the high teeth. I go back. It's actually that like ledge where it starts kind of scooping in and having this nice like, I don't know, shape. That's where your tongue is supposed to rest. That's biologically, physiologically, as far as I know. Again, if an expert wants to correct me, let me know. Um, but that is the natural place to rest So your when listening, the idea is not to strain any muscles, keep muscles in a natural position so you can empty that vessel. Yeah. The less tension, the better. And I think for me, if I can focus on my physical sensation, that sometimes helps me keep all the other voices mm. and clutter at bay. And that's why I'm always like, are my feet on the ground? Where am I in my chair? Where's my tongue? Um, and that doesn't require, you know, language processing. It's just sort of this automatic mm. muscle memory that I can tap into so that the language processing parts of my brain can focus on the words that are being spoken mm. to me. And, and then the sounds of that person's voice. Very important. It's not just, and, you know, inflection and, you know, 
emojis try to do a job of, of for inflection sometimes when texting and you know my you know I'll say to my daughter did you talk to your sister today and she'll say yeah and I said um, Olivia I mean talking like what we're doing now and she's like oh no no we texted so I said <laughs> very very different um, that's what I meant by talking you you also talk about how people will pick up their cell phone middle of the conversation you're talking to them and yeah. you know I, I i just i can't stand that i i, I put my hand you know i i probably probably don't yeah. do the best reaction but it's just it's rude elizabeth it's rude <laughs> yeah i mean i i feel that way i'm yeah. i'm in your camp of it feels very rude i'll i'll turn my phone off or on do not disturb i mean i also have privileges that allow for that right if i'm a parent you best believe my phone would be mm. on all the time. If my child needed anything, I would want to be, drop everything, get out of there. I'm not a parent. I can turn off my phone. There's nobody in my life that I'm caretaking for that would need to access me at 24-7. If there was, I understand why you would leave your phone on. I think that I've also kind of adapted to understanding like neurodivergence and anxiety and mm. social anxiety in particular. My partner always has his phone and it used to really bother me. But then I started realizing that we would be talking and the reason he picked up his phone was because something I said reminded him of something he saw uh. and he wanted to pull it up and show me. And part of how he communicates is to say, oh, that reminds me of this comic or this piece of artwork or this person. Let me show you who that is. That, that's his way of trying to add layers mm -hmm. to the communication. And it took me a minute because I came in with that harsh judgment. You're just being rude. You're not listening. And after I slowed down and was like, what are you doing with your phone? He's like, well, I'm looking up the thing you just mentioned. I actually saw something related to that and I want to show it to you. And I learn to slow down my communication, let him do that. And then I think with people who are neurodivergent or anxiety, the phone is often a comfort thing. So I think, you know, etiquette comes from very colonizing, very elitist mentality of you, this is controlling the way you should be behaving. If you don't behave this way, you're a mm. peasant. <laughs> you know? And I think what we can evolve into as a society is to say, the same way I'm listening to your words, I want to listen to your behavior and understand, like ask the question, what is on your phone or what are you doing in a way that's not, what are you doing? That's so rude. Then they get defensive. And then, you know, when I ask the question, well, what's going on on your phone? That's so interesting. He's like, well, it's what you were talking about. And I'm like, oh, you're really engaged to the point where you're trying mm. to engage further with additional information and media because he thinks very visually versus I don't think visually. Like I have, I forget what I think it's called aphantasia or like I, I can't picture mm. things in my head. I can't picture images. And that's, um, I don't know how common that is. I, I have complex PTSD, so maybe mm. it's like attached to that. But he has these vivid visualizations. He's drawing. He's a comic artist. So like that is integral to how he communicates. And just because it's not integral to mine. And if I'm looking at my phone in a conversation with you, I am being rude. I'm telling you I'm not interested anymore. Um, so I don't ever do it unless I'm really not interested. But it's a different way that he communicates. And I had to listen to that, understand it, and accept that, you know, this idea that what is rude, what is right or is wrong is, again, a, a legacy of mm. colonialism. 
My partner does the same thing. And uh, say, as soon as you said that, <laughs> I, I, just recently, I said something. I mentioned a musical artist in a song. And she she started looking it up. I said, "What are you doing?" She goes, "I'm looking." Yeah, and uh, and she does the same thing. We used to have a policy with my girls, with my my daughters at dinner. Whoever got the took the phone out had to say an embarrassing story or a joke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that didn't last very long once they, you know, got into college and became, you know, young women. Uh, but, uh, you know, also, you know, you talk about taking out your phone, just the society where people are distracted. Look, look, Elizabeth, I brought props. Like if somebody would like to, to uh, like a fidget spinner like during a conversation, I, again, is it, is it ADD, which, you know, we can argue is over diagnosis. Not, is it just, it's just hard to yeah. be present. Yeah, I think that it can be hard to be present for some people. I think that, again, with the neurodivergence, being more aware of those things, whether I mean, I know ADHD is overdiagnosed as well. But as somebody who, you know, I have complex PTSD, I did neurofeedback, and I was actually able to see the electrical activity in my brain mapped out. And, uh, you know, my amygdala was on fire, super overactive. And my prefrontal cortex was really under uh, utilized. Like I didn't have enough neurons firing. And that wasn't like a choice I made. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't a moral failure. Failure. That was the fact that my brain developed in conditions where it felt constantly under threat. And so my amygdala is maybe overdeveloped, mm. hyper aware. And when I went through neurofeedback, um, I had the experience of having my amygdala electrical activity wow. turned down and my prefrontal cortex turned up. And I can tell you that from the experience of having complex PTSD and an on-fire amygdala, a fidget spinner would have mm. been a godsend because my brain would have had something else to send electrical activity to. It would have something else to work with. And when I kind of learned about fidgets and they're kind of becoming no, like no. more of a thing now, they weren't really a thing when I was a kid. You know, I got in trouble for fidgeting in class or I got in trouble for doodling in class. But that actually really helped my brain soothe my on-fire amygdala. And now that I'm on the other side of it and I'm more balanced out, I don't necessarily need it. I do find it distracting when someone else is, is fidgeting because I'm so present and I'm paying attention to everything that they're saying. But I think because I've been on both sides of that neurological diversity where I've been off the scale, unhealthy brain, my brain was really struggling to going through the treatment and getting to a place where my brain is functioning more optimally. I understand the experience. And when I see a fidget spinner, you know, I, unless the intention really is to be rude and they're sitting there like actively trying to piss me off, um, which I which I would say is rarely, if ever, the right. case, uh, I learn to just tune it out, right? And, and, and kind of let it fade into the background because that's what also how our brain works, right? If something stays constant, our brain will filter it out. So the reason that fidget spinner I'm suffering is my choice to pay attention to it. If I just again, woo-way, non-doing, if I just allow it to be, it will fade into the background the same way that, you know, the sound of the air and the AC doesn't irritate you because your brain eventually kind of just filters it out. 
I let the fidget spinner or the fidget or whatever that person needs to accommodate, you know, their their brain and what they need in that moment. Sometimes it's social anxiety. Sometimes it was a bad day. I'm I'm open and willing to receive that without judgment. And I don't always ask. It's really not always my business. <laughs> you know, with my partner, it was my business <laughs> what he was doing on his phone um, and why he wasn't listening to me. Um, and I, you know, if we were having a romantic moment and he took out a fidget spinner, I might be like, for real? <laughs> like, right now? <laughs> um, but for someone who comes to mediation or someone I'm interacting with in life, if that is helpful to them, you know, I wish I had had things that were helpful for mm. me when I was struggling. And now that I'm on the other side, I'm sort of I, I think I'm more understanding and like, OK, if you need that, do whatever you need to do, because I, I would rather you not suffer through this conversation, especially if I can easily ignore it. By the way, a great band name would be Megdala on Fire, I think. <laughs> So uh, your firm, Humans, I just uh, wrote that down. Yeah, your firm, Humans Mediate, is is so at at the core, you're an actual mediator, but listening is essential to that. You have you have core commitments, acceptance, collaboration, and consent. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so. We're mediators. We developed our own innovative mediation process that integrates the latest technology. Mediation hasn't gotten Mm. a facelift in a long time. And myself and my Gen Z crew, we're we're here to offer that and continue to provide paths for alpha when they get to the place where they're ready to mediate, which could be a lot earlier than people think. You know, usually a child under 12, if they're exposed to the skills, will start using them in life early. So we like to see those people in mediation. We'd love to have younger mediators um, as young as that (laughs) with parental consent, I guess. Um, But our core commitments are acceptance, consent, and collaboration, as you mentioned. It took us a while to get those. So it was a journey. Initially, the mediation model I was trained in, the inclusive model in Maryland, their core values, what they call the big three, are um, voluntary, confidential, Hmm. and neutral. And we evolved and adapted that into what we felt was more authentic. So, you know, voluntary, to me, that has connotations of like, okay, well, I'm a volunteer. Or, you know, I think of like a drill sergeant, mm. you chose to be here. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, but consent is so we, we sort of took voluntary and transformed it into consent, which really comes out of the sex positive movement where they're saying, you know, yes, in, an enthusiastic yes is go for it. And Mm. a no means no. And there's this respect for bodily autonomy. And that conversation blew up a lot when Me Too happened. And so consent is a word that I think the generations and the people who were around that moment resonate more with than voluntary. And consent also gives you more flexibility than voluntary. It says, you can say no. You can consent originally and then change your mind and say no. And that is okay. So consent, uh, there's a YouTube video about consent explained as tea, which is wonderful and everyone should learn that. They actually have been showing it in the doctor's offices of a lot of the teenagers that my friends have. And they said that they're really, the teenagers really like that. Um, The collaboration, um, that was something that didn't necessarily, wasn't evolved from a previous core value from Mm. from Community Mediation Maryland. It came out of I was having interns, I had trainees, and over and over again, the feedback I got was, 
I had no idea collaboration was so important. Hmm. I didn't realize there is a way to collaborate. There are skills to it. There's a way of being collaborative that is intentional. It's not just, oh, I'm collaborative and what the heck does that mean? And so because so many of the people that I was working with came back to me with the most profound experience was, whoa, I've never collaborated Mm. with people in this way. I've never been in conditions where working together was so easy and rewarded and turned out better than we ever thought. And so I thought, wow, Mm. that is one of our core values, right? I, I didn't mean to plant that seed. And yet over and over again, I got that answer. So we have consent, collaboration, and then acceptance for me is the evolution of saying, you know, we're third-party neutrals, we're impartial. Some people say multi-partial, they'll say non-judgmental, neutral. All of those words to me are defining what we're not doing Hmm. instead of what we are doing. And so what we are doing when we're neutral, when we're accepting, when we're partial, impartial, or multi-partial is we're saying... We accept every person who's here. We accept every side, every idea is accepted. And that implies an equality, right? You can't accept something more than something else. It's all in the same space of I'm open to accepting you. You exist and we're going to work Mm. with you and meet you where you are. So for acceptance, that's making sure that every person that comes to mediation feels that the way they show up and who they are is the right person and the right way to mediate. So we don't have ground rules. We don't tell people what to do. We don't say, you're cursing. That's not allowed. If someone's cursing, we reflect those Mm. curse words back to them. I would happily say them on your podcast, but I don't know if I'm allowed. So So yeah, they'll say, I'm fucking pissed. And a lot of mediators will say, you sound frustrated. No, I'm Mm. fucking pissed. (laughs) And so our mediators would say, So I'm hearing Mm. that you're fucking pissed. And the person's like, yeah, I'm like beyond frustrated. I'm beyond angry. I'm fucking pissed. And and when you reflect that back to somebody, you're not only demonstrating that you heard them, but you're saying, I accept Mm. that you're fucking pissed. There is nothing wrong with you for feeling this way. In fact, tell me what is going on that is so Mm. that has you fucking pissed. Because it's okay that you're fucking pissed. I believe that you are. Help me understand what's going on because I want to understand what are the needs you have that are not being met. You only get fucking pissed when a need Hmm. you have has been unmet over and over and over and over again. Or a need that is so central to your being is being unmet that you have now become fucking pissed. And I think emotionally when we listen – we think, oh, that person is overreacting. They're overdramatic. But what we really, if we're listening in an accepting way, we're saying, that person is fucking pissed. And I cannot change how that person feels. If I had the magic formula to make people feel certain things, I would mm. make everyone feel beautiful and happy and loved and appreciated all the time. I can't do that. Mm. If I could, I would. So if I can't change that they're fucking pissed, then the best option, again, Wu Wei, non-action. Mm-hmm. Meet them where they're at. Okay, you're fucking pissed. There's nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly valid. I meet you where you are. Help me understand. And when we can get that understanding, that person goes from fucking pissed mm. to feeling heard. They're de-escalated. They start telling you what happened. You start understanding what their needs are. And when you understand what their needs are, you can make plans to meet those needs. Hmm. 
I think that that acceptance is that core piece because I'm not saying, well, I'm I'm not taking your side or that side. You're not you're that's distracting because you're sitting there thinking, how can I be neutral? What I want to be is accepting. What I want to be is present to what's in front of me and saying, whatever it is, however this person is feeling, hmm. I trust them. I trust that this is really what they're experiencing. And since I can't change how they feel, I will try to understand it. And in that understanding, you do change the feeling, right? They go from fucking pissed to, that's exactly it. I am fucking pissed. Thank you. I'm so glad mm. someone finally understands, right? And and you take fucking pissed to, I don't understand why you take your phone mm. out when we go out all the time to, oh, you are verbal communic. You you mm. you think visually. And, oh, you, you actually have anxiety and this actually really helps you and this, you know, limits your suffering. Now I went from fucking pissed to connected to you. I understand you. We can have a deeper relationship and my needs to feel heard can happen because now I know you're listening even though you're on your phone. And your need to communicate visually is met because I learned to slow down and let you look it up and show me. So do... Who comes to you? Do couples come to you? Do business associates? Do employers? And who, who is it? Always a person who's upset and the other person who's not hearing them, or are they alone? Is it a group of people? Is it a family dynamic? There's a lot of questions there, Elizabeth. Mm. Yeah, all of the above, Joe. Um, what we find is that mediation is best for humans who can take the actions mm. to meet their needs. So sometimes with workplaces, I'll have a manager come to me and say, two of my direct reports are fighting. <laughs> and I'll say, great, you called the right person. I let them know that it's a confidential process. I can't tell them anything that comes out of the mediation. If they can live with that, we're on to the next step. I tell them, you can't force them to mediate. If they say right. no, I won't do it. They have to both want to do it. Hmm. If you try to force them to do it, they're going to get to mediation. I'm going to ask them if they want to be here. And if they say no, I will tell them they are welcome to leave at any time. So mm. don't play games. <laughs> and they will say yes to both of those things, sometimes reluctantly, but they're at the end of the rope. They want to try something new. What they've been trying isn't working and they need something else. And then you have coworkers or we do have couples. We have roommates. You have co-founders. You talk about entrepreneurship. One of the main causes of a small business or venture ending pre before it gets to its full potential is you'll have co-founders or mm. staffing issues and those personal conflicts break it down and it's over. You have dreams shattered because you mm. can't get along. And that's a very that's more common than people realize. We don't talk about people's failure stories as much as we talk about success, but there for every success, there's a million failures. And many of those are relationships. You have parents. So parenting mm. plans are really important. You have teenagers and their parents, kids and their parents. You have Anybody who is in relationship with someone else and they are doing something together can benefit from either being proactive, so using mediation to make plans together. How are we going to do this? How are we going to collaborate? You can use it to respond when something happens. Oop, this fire happened at work. Or, hey, we're getting divorced. Or, you know what? We're planning on having kids. 
do we both agree that they should go to private school? Mm. No, uh oh, we better have that conversation, right? Or are they going to get raised in your or my faith, right? That is a conversation that is really worth mediating. Hmm. And then there's reflecting, right? And saying, okay, something's happened. Let's mediate. It, it's not immediate, but let's learn from what happened, right? Like if we're co founders and, you know, we've had a good run, we're happily ending the business, or, you know, if we're in a relationship and we're breaking up, it might be worth sitting down and saying, well, what happened? learning, understanding what could I do better. Even if you intend to end that relationship, you're able to reap more benefits and learn more and meet more of your needs when you mediate either you know, proactively in response to something or reflectively. And again, anybody, you know, lots of mediators will niche. And for us, our process is able to accommodate hmm. all of those people. There are different programs we offer so that you can get more support. If you're a parenting plan, you might want support about child development. If you're a couple, you might want some support around like, yeah, how do you divide assets? How would the court, how would it be beneficial to go to court? How would it mm. not benefit me to go to court, right? If you're, if you're coworkers, okay, we went through this, but what's going on at our company? Right. Like that's how we add consulting as well. So we do listening tours where we go through an entire organization, group of people and say, what's going on? What, what's been going on in the past? What's going on now? What do you hope for the future? And then through that listening, whatever emerges, we might mediate, we might do restorative practice, we might do a training, but we allow the needs to emerge and then we try to meet them. And we also trust that the people who know what they need and how to meet them are the mm. people involved. Right. I don't come into an organization or a couple or a parent to co-parents and say, I'm the expert. I know everything. I'm a colonizer. I'm arrogant. I walk in and I say, I trust that you know what's best for yourself. You are the experts at your experience, your relationship, your circumstances, your business. So you have the answer. You know what you need. And I have the process to help you discover what those things are and make plans to meet those needs. Because ultimately, when they're finished with mediation, they learn this listening, this new way of communicating, but they shouldn't need us anymore. They learn how to go through a conflict, which is a conflict is simply when your needs and my needs aren't being met. And mediation is a process to find out what those mm. are and how to meet them. And we don't get a mm. lot of repeat clients <laughs> because they learn, they see the process, they get better at listening to each other, they get better at listening to themselves and making requests and offerings. And then they don't need us. They have a sustainable solution to make their collaboration better in everything they do, whether that be starting a Fortune 500 company, starting a small business, having a kid together, being roommates, being neighbors, whatever it is, we're able to accommodate that and hold space for it. What a what a wonderful wonderful service! Uh, I can see so many people uh, benefiting from that. Um, so on the podcast, Elizabeth, yeah. we we talk about discipline, right? So I lost a lot of weight when I was young. Yes, you know, I started a business. You know, maybe if I listened to my body a little more. But anyway. Um, and, <laughs> and and I lost. You know, so the doctor said you're not going to see your daughter graduate. That's all I needed to hear. And so I just, Ugh. you know, you're pre-diabetic, you're pre-hypertensive, you know, so uh, hypertension. Yeah. So, you know, I just turned everything around. I lost a bunch of weight. And, and so people ask me, they want some silver bullet. And I just say discipline. I lost it because of discipline. I got focused and I got discipline. I wonder how, how you view discipline and how discipline plays a role in listening and mediation. Yeah. Well, 
I'll answer that question about discipline. I want to first say to you, Joe, that that pre-diabetes, that mm. eating was not your fault. Hmm. And I hope you know that. Um, there are huge industries and power mm. that benefited from you eating that way, ignoring your body, um, being in a position where you were so sick that you might have to go on insulin that your own hormones couldn't maintain it. And that's, um, you know, you were set up to fail by a food system, by a pharmaceutical system, by a healthcare system that's failed, by a government that mm. didn't regulate any of those things. And I hope that, you know, I know you've overcome that and, you know, you really deserve to give yourself credit for overcoming that. And I hope that you are able to remove any of that blame from yourself because it absolutely had nothing to do with you and self-control mm. and free will. You were genuinely sabotaged and set up to fail like all Americans have been. Um, so I, 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 from one human to another, mm. I hope you get the message that I would not fault your past self, if anything. Um, I think it sounds like you do have gratitude Certainly. for your past self for having the discipline mm. to overcome that. I, I thought to myself, I got myself here, I'll get out of it, you know. Uh, have you considered your, I mean, you talked about struggles with, with PTSD and uh, do you, do you consider yourself as a child, as a younger person disciplined? Did it ever come into a role in your life? Yeah, I was initially attracted to your podcast. You were talking about discipline and discipline feels so counter mm. to Wu Wei, which was so interesting to me because I think, um, yes, there is a part of me that I would say was disciplined. I actively sought out answers for why I was experiencing and suffering the way I was. I had to really reach out to lots of people to learn about neurofeedback. I had to be courageous and brave to try something new. I also had privileges. I had access to the capital mm. to reach that service. It's mm. not covered by insurance. PTSD is not covered by insurance. It's not mm. in the DSM. Um, I think it is, but I had complex PTSD and currently there is no oh. FDA approved treatment of PTSD. So you aren't going to get really any help. I think maybe um, our veterans are served better, <laughs> maybe. But your average person isn't going to have access to neurofeedback. And I also had the education and I was in a city where I had a neurofeedback practitioner wow. that was fantastic. Um, I owe a debt of gratitude to Dr. Ashley Bell and Neurogrove for hugely transforming my life. And yes, it was discipline to get there. And it was hmm. rewiring my brain speaking the language of my brain electrically. And there was no amount of free will or discipline or effort that I could have put in that would have soothed my on-fire amygdala and brought my right. prefrontal cortex back to life. There is no amount of self-determination that would have done that. Mm. I was very far gone. So not everyone is, you know, more than three standard deviations from a healthy brain. <laughs> I was off on both ends of the scale. Um, not everyone is in that position. Um, thank God. <laughs> I would not wish that upon anyone. But when I saw my brain, and now I just did um, a dried urine test, I got to see my hormone levels. It's very helpful to recognize that, yes, I can be disciplined about my diet, my exercise, my sleep. I'm very good at those things. And there are physical realities that are out of my control. And listening and understanding my body and understanding that there is a way to live in harmony with how I'm physiologically, biologically designed. And my current environment mm. is incompatible with that. My 
late stage capitalist, my pharmaceutical companies rule everything, my really debilitated food system, soil that has been depleted for mm. centuries. Um, I didn't have any control over that. No amount of discipline mm. is going to get the same mineral content in the soil that was there before it was taken out and exploited by factory farming. But by understanding and accepting that reality, I can make different choices. I can, you know, maybe alert people to that mm. as I hopefully am right mm. now by mentioning it. And I can figure out where discipline is useful. So Wu Wei isn't not doing all the time. It's not doing in harmony mm. with doing, right? So you have the yin yang where it's like, okay, there are times when not doing is what is needed. And there are times when doing is what is needed. And for me, I found that in all these systems and these combative systems and these horrible communications and these poor conditions for collaboration and our terrible food system and pharmaceutical industry, um, I could fight them. I could go the doing route and disciplinary, devote my whole life to fighting them. There are people who do that and I mm. appreciate them deeply. And there's the not doing way, which is to say, okay, you know, the courts and the criminal justice system exist. I disagree with a lot of how they do things. I don't want to fight them. I think they do some things very well, and I think they should continue existing for certain things. As a mediator, I'm saying instead of doing and fighting you and saying you're my adversary and aggressively doing, which is what colonization mm. has taught us to do, right? The person with the most force and weapons wins. <laughs> um, I'm saying if you are incompatible, with the way humans are social and how we are psychologically. And if you have caused so much damage and mistrust, you will decompose and I hmm. have to do nothing, right? You will decompose in the way that everything humans build will decompose if nature takes back over, right? It doesn't matter how hard we try, a hmm. hurricane will swallow you. And we've learned that over and over and over again. Um, by not doing, by not fighting and saying, I'm taking you down, that is the better approach when I look at the courts. I'm actually now switching to doing and saying, instead of fighting you, I'm going to take that do energy and turn that into building mm. an alternative system and say, hey, you know, the cases where people are really emotional and it's very personal and you don't have case precedent for where the kid's socks go, why don't you send them to mediation? Because now we can actually have a conversation about where your child's socks go. Because can you imagine if you're a kid and your socks are in two different homes, mm. how are you supposed to have matching socks? And there is no law that says you must have matching socks. But the kid and the parents are so upset about the wow. socks. It's a real case. The socks is a real case. And I was like, if you had said this to a judge, they would have shooed you out and said, you crazy people, get over the socks, right? And when you come to mediation, we say, you know what? If the socks would really improve your quality of life, if the socks are really causing suffering, I believe you because you were telling me they are. And let's figure out our plan for the socks. What is the plan? And I didn't tell them what to do. They came up with, well, why don't we just buy her all the same socks? She has all the same color socks, all the same brand, so that no matter what house she's in, her socks will always match. And now this thing that maybe sounds ridiculous to any of us would sound like nothing to a judge. This family is now able to hmm. operate in a better way because the thing that was so irritating <laughs> that they were losing their minds about it has been solved. 
because we accepted that that was real. That wasn't a need for them to have matching socks. And we made sure they had a way to meet that need. So I'm not doing the fighting. I am doing the building a parallel system. And I am actively asking and inviting collaboration with the courts because I don't Mm. see them as an enemy. I'd rather us be in harmony. And how we can be in harmony is knowing what we're both good at and serving all the needs, including the legal needs and the needs for socks. And we can do that better together than fighting. So if we go back to discipline, is it needed in listening? Is it needed in mediation specifically? Is it like you, so you kind of, if I understand, if I, uh, when, when you're not doing does not doing involve a certain level of discipline? By the way, I don't mean to insinuate that discipline is the base of everything. There's some things that I'm disciplined at and some things another. I don't mean to be captain discipline. It's just kind of the string that I <laughs> that I love to hear people's yeah. viewpoint on. Some people have a very mil- militaristic view of it. You know, discipline is you know yeah. uh, uh, punishing your children, and some people say, well, self discipline is just making sure I push yeah. the cake away. You know, so there's 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 a spectrum, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, I think that discipline Mm. has an active role to take in not doing. And I think that in a culture that has conditioned us to be Mm. very doing, it is a discipline. It is a practice. It is a skill to be an empty vessel. Mm. It is a skill to be accepting. And the skill that mediators are excellent at, or at least my mediators are excellent at, and humans mediate, is getting out of the way, right? We're saying maybe we haven't had this modeled for us. Maybe this is the first time our participants have ever experienced professionals having the discipline to hold space for them mm. and not take up space ourselves. There is a discipline to that. And, and part of that has been, you know, as a mediator, people will come in and they'll treat me like the authority. Mm. Like, well, what would you do? Why don't you tell us what to do? Because right. they're used to that. They're used to going to a judge, a parent, a superior, an elder who will say, top down, this is what you're going to do. And they just are obedient and follow it, whether or not it's right for them. And so in mediation, I have to have the discipline to um, start with listening and understanding and say, well, sounds like you're looking for an outside opinion. Tell me more about that. What is important to you about getting Mm -hmm. someone else's opinion? Well, you know, we want an expert opinion. We don't really know. Okay. So it sounds like really valuing expertise and that you're feeling confused about what to do. Is that right? Yeah. And then I ask, well, what, what do you, where do you think you could get that expertise? Well, you know, maybe, maybe someone's written a book about this. Or, you know what? I actually would probably just want to talk to my priest. Or, you know, my therapist actually could give me a referral to a family therapist. And so people have the answer, but they've been so disciplined mm. and conditioned to, like, immediately ask an authority. There's this sort of learned helplessness and there's a discipline in holding space for people to have a different experience, right? They they want me as a media to come in and fix it. And I have to have the discipline to remain empty, to keep my agenda, my opinion, what I think they should do. I have to leave that mm. outside the mediation and come in, stay empty, stay present, give space for them to come into their own solutions. And that can be very difficult <laughs> when you're in a society that says the only value is if you come in and you tell me what to do and you fix it. And we're trying to do something counter to that. And that does take practice and discipline and skill. It's hard to fight the urge, the, mm-hmm. the sort of instinct that I've been conditioned to have to say, 
oh, I have the answer. Go see it. I have this family therapist. They're great, <laughs> right? Because when I do that, it's hmm. immediately disempowering because now the thing that they're doing isn't the thing that they want to do or the thing that they came up with. It's the thing the mediator mm. told them to do. That's not a sustainable solution because I'm not going to be around to tell them mm -hmm. what to do when that doesn't work or when they want to do something else. But if they can learn themselves, and again, we have to, as mediators, have the discipline to hold the space, to listen, to understand, to stay accepting, to not take up space, to not impose ourselves. That is very difficult skill to get muscle memory in when our culture and society has conditioned us to do the mm. exact opposite. So yes, there's space for discipline. There is a lot of discipline required when you're learning a new skill, when you're doing something that feels counterintuitive because the culture has conditioned you to have a different reaction. And mediators see participants have a reaction when we don't take over, when we don't tell them what to do. And hmm. we have to be able to skillfully and in a disciplined way keep that and maintain our neutrality, maintain our acceptance, maintain our trust in them that they know best, that we could not possibly come hmm. up with a solution better than they could because they're the experts at their own life. Well said. Elizabeth Franz, what motivates you? I have my core values, <laughs> which are acceptance, Wu Wei, and beginner mindset. I have my core desires. I desire to be a whole human living in oneness. I desire to be loved and to love. And I have a desire to create and practice transformative hmm. patterns. And what motivates me is to make sure that everything I'm doing in my life is aligned with that. I'm very privileged. I'm very fortunate that you know, running humans mediate, training mediators at the university out here. Um, all of that has been in line with my values and my core desires. And that's been able to maintain a life and sustain a life that I want to live and don't feel the need to escape from. And the other motivation is that as a part, one part of our glorious whole, I the best contribution I can offer is high quality mm. mediation services training high-quality mediators because the future that we deserve is better hmm. than the one we have. There's a lot of building we have to do. And the catalyst for that building, the conditions to make that building meet everyone's needs is in mediation. And that's what I can contribute the best. And that is what I've devoted my life to. It's been 10 years in the field and I intend to keep going until I can't anymore. And that is what my piece of the whole can offer. How wonderful, Elizabeth. You, you have personal core values so that once that's done, every action that you take is a reflection of those values. That's, that's what, How did you arrive to those core values? So it was a mm. long process. You know, I had to explore a lot of different value words. I had to find out that that is what mattered. I think the mediation I practice, we listen mm. for people's values. So I was trained very early on to listen for what is important to people. And then mm. I had to listen to myself and find out what's important to me. And it's a journey to cultivate your own voice. That's a training we offer because there are a lot of voices um, mm. imposed on you that condition you. And I had to really quiet that noise, listen to myself and I think because I was privileged to be taught to listen for values, I knew that if I don't understand what's important to me, I can't choose actions or take actions that reflect what I really want to put out into the world. And then desires is another thing. I think 
there's this Puritan Catholic influence in both being American and, you know, I'm, I'm Filipino, so they're very Catholic, yes. like Italians, yes. you're, you're smiling, you know, um, that's kind of like poo-poo yeah. on pleasure and desires, right? Like, no, we should all Suffering. be, I don't know, what are they called? Yes. The Stoics. <laughs> yeah, we should all be morally above desire but frankly if i'm not doing something i want to do if i'm not living a life that i can enjoy mm. then what am i really doing and i think part of again i feel responsible as a part of our whole i feel connected to my humanity my species my ecosystem my planet my universe i've been entrusted with one piece of that and I need to do with that piece the best I can. And that is reflecting my values, contributing what I am most able to contribute and enjoying and meeting my desires, right? Knowing what those are and meeting those without shame or guilt and in fact, pride and enjoyment. And so hopefully one piece of our late stage capitalist suffering whole can be like, I'm okay. I, I am better than okay. I am enjoying myself. I am living in alignment with my values. I am meeting my desires. And that's the best I can do. So how do you measure success? So that's a good question. Mediation is more about the process than the outcome, which is also very countercultural. I would say, how do I measure success is present. Mm -hmm. How am I now? And... um. I think even more fundamentally, I ask my body, like, did I sleep? Have I eaten? Have I eaten something good for me? Am I hydrated? And, you know, looking at my neurological activity, okay, how am I feeling cognitively? How is my brain doing? Um, when I did my dried urine test, okay, how are my hormones doing, right? Because that electricity, those hormones, those dictate everything in my experience and in my life. And so now I'm beginning the arduous journey of figuring out how to balance my incredibly mm. imbalanced hormones. And I'm seeking the help of doctors who know how to read a Dutch test, which is not very many. And I am finding what I'm sure you found when you were doing your weight loss, that there are systems that actively mm. are in place to sabotage you, right? You, you can make more money off of a sick person than a healthy person. You can make more money off a woman who is hormonally imbalanced than one that is in harmony with her hormones, with her body, with her cycle. And so there is no incentive in late stage capitalism to ensure that you're at a healthy weight and that your insulin is working and to ensure that my progesterone, my estrogen, my, um, my insulin mm. is working properly because if it's not working properly, I'm mm. a great customer. And that's what this system is always going to produce. That's a shame. You know, it's interesting you say that. I've got a great meme on my phone I want to show you, but no, that's a little joke. That's a joke. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a joke, of course. Uh, Elizabeth Franz, an absolute delight. You know, when when uh, I saw that you accepted and, uh, you know, I, I do a little research on you and I was just excited to talk to you. You're, you're very inspirational. You know, mediation is something that I wasn't aware of that's available. I'm, I'm hoping people listening know that, you know, that know that it is now. And I, I want to thank you for your time. How can we get in touch with you? 
It's a great question. We love to connect. Um, our website is humansmediate.com, humans spelled with a Z instead of an S. So plural humans with a Z. It's humansmediate.com. You can schedule a time on my Calendly link there. I'll talk to you for 15 minutes on Zoom, no strings attached. We love to connect and hear about people who want to understand mediation, become mediator themselves, have a problem they want solved through mediation collaboratively, any training, more than happy to reach out to people. And soon on our website, we'll have an events calendar so people can join the listening lab. Um, We open it up to people. Very good. And we'll make sure to put that in the show notes, Elizabeth Franz, an absolute delight. Thank you so much for your time. And, you know, uh, you live close to my my partner, my girlfriend. Maybe one day the four of us will go out and, you know, have a cup of coffee. I'd love that. And your partner and my partner could be on their phone showing each other stuff. And you and I can show proper communication, communicate presently in person without looking Feet at Feet on phone. the ground, so, tongue up. Matt, I'm That's calling right. you out. That's exactly right. <laughs> Elizabeth, thank you so much. And we'll, we'll have to meet up for that. I appreciate your time. You be well. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Nice to meet you. Thank you for listening and or viewing Joey Pinn's Discipline Conversations. Please share this episode with one or two of your friends who you think may benefit from the episode. Our website, www.joeypins.com. There you find lots of resources and you could join our mailing list. Please follow us on all our social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Podcast information, the video version of our podcast is on YouTube. Please subscribe. Audio is on all major podcasting platforms. Please follow them. And if you like it, please consider giving five-star rating. Would really appreciate that. Would you like to financially support the podcast? You can go to our Patreon site. Consider $5, 10 or $20 a month. There's all kind of plans that we have there. There's like a one-time payment. What is this podcast episode worth to you? $25, $50, $100, $500, $1,000, $5,000. You be the judge. You can go to our PayPal account to do that as well. Thank you again for listening or watching Joey Pinn's Discipline Conversations.